Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have Acts, which is also written by Luke, and it is essentially the follow-up to uh, the book of Luke, or, or to this biography of Jesus, as to what happens when Jesus then leaves the earth, goes to the right hand of the Father, and leaves us with his spirit. What does God do through his spirit and through the church? And so as we go through the book of Acts and head into Romans in the New Testament, if you are one of those who likes to read through the Bible, maybe you have a Bible reading plan. Um, if you don't have one, this is the time of year when you want to start looking for one. I have uh, many different available um, that I know of that I could help you with and encourage you to use. Um, if you'd like one of those, just let me know. I think I still have some in the office that I have put out before. Maybe I'll have some of those available in the weeks to come. Remind me if you want one of those, and I can try to make those available to all of you um, because we're coming up to the first of the year, and it's a good time to start something new. As I start uh, the first of the year, I'm actually starting a, uh, a journaling Bible uh, from uh, the, the people who make the English Standard Version, the version that I preach from and that you have in the pews and many of you own. They make a, a journaling Bible that has, I think it's two-inch margins on the side that are lined uh, like a, a moleskin journal, if you've seen those. It's hard, hard back. They have different versions of it, but uh, I'm starting one of those so I can have a, a Bible with lots of space where I can leave a lot of my notes in the side and um, draw lots of circles around words and phrases and arrows pointing to all sorts of different things. And some of you have Bibles that you don't want to write too much in. And uh, I'd encourage you, if you're looking for something like that, that is a good one to look at. Um, I'll try to bring it in the weeks to come so you can see that if you're interested uh, in getting one of those. I'm not making any money from telling you that. I'm just trying to encourage you to be reading the Word on your own with your families. Um, recently with my children, I, I bought them. Daniel, hold it up. Your Bible. It's the ESV Student Study Bible. Um, it's very helpful. I, I just love it. It's like the ESV Study Bible, although it's a bit smaller and they've changed the format a bit. You can put it down now unless you want your arms to be really tired and lacking blood. Um, the, uh, the ESV study Bible is very large. Um, it would flatten Daniel if he tried to hold it up over his head. And so this one's a little bit smaller and has some especially helpful notes for youth and, and, and kids. So all of my kids own their own now because they were begging me for them after I got one and got another. And then the little kids had to have their own and um, so we're using that as we study the Bible together. It's a, just a good time of year to think about those things. And so now we're uh, in the book of Romans. And as we're studying the Bible together as a church, we're, we're here in this, uh, this letter that is very helpful in helping us understand the gospel. Um, even the, the name of the series itself, Unashamed of the Gospel. We go back into Romans 1 and we remember that uh, the great passage, the great verse where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile or to the Greek or to, we can just say the non-Jew, which means everybody. It is the gospel of salvation for all. It does not come to just a particular nation. It goes into the world. And anyone who hears and responds in faith can be saved. And so this great gospel, Paul, is is not just outlining, but giving in detail. As a matter of fact, it's an argument. The letter to the church in Rome is essentially Paul making an argument with himself 
which, by the way, if you don't do that, you are missing out on what I think God intends for all of us to do is, uh, and I've said this before, it's not, it's very important that you don't just listen to yourself, but that you talk to yourself or that you preach to yourself. You are going to be a person just like I am who is going to just have this natural reaction where you're saying things to yourself. I'm not talking about something, you know, medically wrong. I'm saying that we, we're, we're always saying things to ourselves about the circumstances around us, about the world that we're in, about the things that we see on the news, and typically they are fast, they're just quick, they're reactions. And normally our reactions are some of the most dangerous things we have. And the reason I know that is because we do things like drive. Right? One of my favorite illustrations is to talk about driving. And my kids will tell you that there's probably 98% of the time when I drive, my immediate reaction is negative, judgmental. You know, I'm, I, everything that everybody does is wrong, and the minute I do something wrong, I've got good reasons for it, and everybody should just kind of forgive me and smile and wave. And, and you know, it takes a real effort to, to preach to myself and to say, maybe they just made an honest mistake. Maybe they're in a hurry because there's something important that's happening and sometimes I'm in a hurry and I need, you know, and, and it's always the day when you're late and you're trying to drive at that maximum level, just right where the cops won't stop you. And then there's always that car that's going eight mile an hour below the speed limit. How can you go eight mile an hour below 30? I mean, really, eight, eight mile an hour below 30? I mean, how does that even happen? And it's not like it's just somebody who's, you know, stereotypical, older, or woman driver, okay? I'm trying to be kind here. But it's just somebody who's distracted. I was behind somebody yesterday. It was dark, and I'm coming, I'm coming home last night, and, uh, and I kept going, their head, I mean, you can tell they're digging on the passenger side on the floor for something right? You know what I'm talking about? The person who's way over there, and their car's like this far from the curb on the right side, and, and I'm just watching. I'm going, if they hit anything, I'm stopping and telling the police that they were not paying attention to their driving, because they were just, they were all over, and they were, and finally, you know, I got home, and I didn't have a chance to tattle. Um, we are people who, who have rapid responses to things, and what we need to do is slow down and to preach to ourselves. To continually preach the gospel to ourselves. And the gospel tells us that it is not us who deserves anything, but that what we get is of grace. And Romans throughout is a letter of grace, explaining in great detail grace. And then Paul, as he explains it, doesn't just kind of give it as a lecture but he gives it as this argument for grace. And to do that, he starts with sin and what we do not deserve and how we're all in the same boat. We all deserve God's punishment. We, none of us seek after God. All of us are hostile to God. We cannot be otherwise because we have sinned and everything has been so torqued that we're simply aimed that way. You're born that way. And, and so when, 
when that is our aim, when that is our focus, and we cannot do any other, and we don't want to do any other, we get exactly what we deserve, except that God chooses to give us what we don't deserve, which is his love, his mercy, his grace, his son, so that if we repent of these sins and trust in Christ, we have life. And he takes us from this body of sin and death, and then he will one day make it new in, in, into uh, this renewed body, and then he'll take the creation and he'll renew the creation so that we will live forever as his renewed people, not sinning, never experiencing the kind of suffering that we experience in this world by which we cry and we have anger and we lie and we cheat and we steal and we long for what is not ours. Paul makes an argument but the argument is the one that he knows. He, he's continually asking the question, what are people going to ask next? And he's making an argument against what that natural first reaction is going to be. And he gets into Romans 9, 10, and 11, and the natural argument that it comes to is this. He starts the book by saying, He's not ashamed of the gospel, for is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. But then as he goes throughout, he begins by talking about the Jews, and then he starts talking about the Gentiles, and he says they're all in the same boat, or I, I reversed that, it's the Gentiles and the Jews, but he, he, he essentially says we're all in the same boat, we all have sinned, and then he begins to talk about this great salvation, and how there is no condemnation. How we are justified now by Christ. And then he, he realizes there's going to be this segment of those who read this, including for the last 2,000 years, who are going to say, but what about the Jews? Did they not have these great gifts? You, you, you're saying they're sinners, but God made these promises to the Jews. He promised them. And so... Is something wrong? What is, what is amiss here? And through Romans 9 and Romans 10, Paul begins to develop this argument. In Romans 11, as he keeps giving these new conclusions to new questions, he gets again to another question. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Paul makes it very clear that the Jews are not only sinners, but that they are now in a, in, in, in a fallen state. In other words, the, the promises of God that have come for the Jews, there's some, there's some major problem. In fact, he says in verse 21 of chapter 10, just right before this verse, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul says at the beginning of chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, meaning the Jews, for I bear them witness that they, may have, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. They think the righteousness of God is kept by keeping the law. It is not found by a righteousness outside of ourselves. 
Theologians call it an alien righteousness. It is not our own. Not meaning, an, you know, a little green guy or something. It is not ours. It comes from outside of us. They didn't get it. And so Paul explains it in 10 verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Not the law is for righteousness, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So when we get to chapter 11, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Are, are the Jews merely, completely just rejected and cut off? The answer, the, the obvious answer, that somebody who's going to give that knee-jerk immediate reaction to all the things that Paul has been saying could be, just at the initial part, yes, obviously, he's, just cut, he's cut them off. They had their chance. With Jesus, they rejected, they rejected Jesus, and therefore the Jews are cut off. Now the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Is that the case? And the answer is No. Paul says, by no means. Now, some of you have been a part of churches in the past that have taught that. That have taught that God has rejected fully the Jews and they're just kind of left out in the cold. Too bad for you. But then you go and read in Revelation and other passages and you start saying, but Jews are going to come back someday and there's going to be this. Okay, no, no, no. It, the Bible does not go there. Matter of fact, we're going to find that later on in chapter 11. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But Paul gives a focal point here, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll just let the next couple of sermons give that. Let's follow his argument. Has God rejected his people? The ones who have his promise, the ones who have his covenant, the ones who have the law of Moses. Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What's his, what's his number one reason why God has not rejected his people? I'm his people. I'm Paul. I'm of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day, right? I mean, remember Philippians? Let's go to Philippians, a few books later on. Chapter 3. In the middle of verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Meaning that I was born into something. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Imagine if I were to say, I am an American of Americans. You'd be like, look at that guy, prideful jerk. You're an American of Americans. You, you symbolize all that is America. You know, Mr. White, middle class, you know, is that, is that really what America is? Is that real? It would, it would seem like an arrogant statement, but Paul's not making an arrogant statement. I mean, it is, it is arrogant because he's showing this is talking of the flesh. But 
it's still a reality. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he was an ideal of a people. As to the law, a Pharisee, meaning someone who kept it to a T. Someone who was the most in the most recognized group of people who keep the law, who do it well, who do it publicly, and who everybody looks up to as someone who can keep the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, meaning of all the enemies of what it means to be a Jew, Paul was doing what was necessary in leading the people by having them persecute Christians, the followers of Jesus, because he was an enemy to him of Israel. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had it all. He, he had everything he needed in his flesh, in his birth, and then in his life, according to what righteousness that Israel thought they could find on their own, Paul had it all. He's the one who's writing the, the victory songs. He's the one who's got it down pat. He's the one that everybody's looking to. He's the one that when he walked into a room, the attention turned to him. And so he says back in Romans 11, Has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself, I myself am his people. I am the perfect picture of what his people should be. I am the human ideal. You know what it's like? You watch, um, anybody watch some college football yesterday? Or you watch some, some no college football here, okay? Some of you, my, my kids, yes. You watch some college football, watch some basketball, watch some hockey, you know, watch some curling. I don't know what you guys are watching. Some of you are looking at me like I'm watching Halo, you know? I'm watching, some of you don't even know what that means, okay? It's all right. Um, a, few, a few of us do. The, y y you look and you say, this is, this is about as perfect as it can be. And, and I remember that time watching Walter Payton run where you're going, man, that guy, he can just run. He was made to do this. He's a physical specimen, right? You just, uh, unbelievable. Or you say, that quarterback. Or you say, that baseball player. Or you say, that preacher. <laughs> not this preacher, that preacher. Um, I'm not dumb enough to try to do that. But do you see what I'm saying? There, there are people in all realms of life, in all areas of work, in all areas of study, in all areas of whatever it is that you do or enjoy, where you have that person, you say, boy, that person, man, they just, they're just on it. And I have a particular poet that I like, and I, I just can't do anything wrong. There's, there's, some, there's some singers or, or musical groups where I listen to their music, and I just go, I, even if I wanted to try to not like it, I, I just have a hard time not loving it. I, I have a hard time being objective. Is it actually good or not? Because I've just decided they can do no wrong. And if I told you who the group was, you would go, I don't even, I've never heard of them. Sorry, I'm not going to tell you who it is. So 
we have that. Paul is that. And you, you look at him with, with his righteousness glistening off of the rays of the sun that always seem to be shining upon him. And Paul says, not only is it just that God hasn't rejected his people, but I was the ideal of that people. Meaning, since that people appear to have been rejected, e even in their appearance, Paul is saying, and he has said what? I am the chief of police. No, not police. I am the chief of sinners, right? I am the ideal of ideals. But I am the chief of sinners. Don't turn back there, but listen again to Philippians. Just the following verse to what I read. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In your version it may say dung in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. An alien righteousness that does not come from him, but from another. And because he realizes it comes from another, he must count everything that he is, all of his perfections as pure imperfection and not just imperfect like I shop at a bookstore online a, a theological bookstore and they have their their imperfection list you know what I'm saying where it's a book that's been dinged up you can still read it all it's all there it's just not going to look as pretty on your shelf because somebody stepped on and pages got bent or that it wasn't cut quite right at the printer whatever it was it's, it's, it's not imperfection, meaning it's still completely fine. It's just got a few kind of physical flaws on the outside. That's not what I mean by imperfection. I mean everything's corrupt. Everything about us is messed up, which is why Paul counts everything as loss, because we cannot gain that righteousness on our own, in ourselves, by how we're born or what we do. So as God rejected his people, by no means I myself am his people. And the ideal of his people, in, in where I come from, descendant of Abraham, Israelite, tribe of Benjamin, he gives some of those qualifications. In other words, his people are those who are born as his people. They are his people by birth. Okay? You, you get what I'm saying? Whether you like it or not, your parents who gave birth to you everybody here has parents right it doesn't matter if they're divorced or or deceased my mom is dead she's still my mom i came from her i didn't come from a test tube you know i wasn't some experiment um i mean i may have been but i it, 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 it when it comes to where i came from there is someone specific two people specifically i better get that right so i don't confuse everybody there are two people specifically I can point to, and there's nothing I can do to change the fact that I came from them. 
I can change my name. I can go get plastic surgery. I can change my skin color. I can change my hair. I can change my eye color with some contacts. I can grow long nails and take some estrogen. I can do whatever I want to do. And it does not change the fact that I come from two people. Paul is talking about coming from that people. Israelite, Abraham, Benjamin. A tribe, a people, a nation. All those born into that people are God's people. And the question is, has God rejected his people? He can't reject his people, Paul says, because I'm his people and I'm not rejected. That's argument number one for why he says, by no means. I'm his people and I'm not rejected. I'm the one writing to you as an apostle. If I'm rejected, you're in trouble. Because, and Paul's not saying I'm an apostle, he's not, he's not giving all those qualifications here, but it would be obvious to those reading, listen, this is Paul, he's a leader of the church, he's not rejected, so God didn't reject him, therefore he hasn't rejected his people. Verse 2, which means I need to speed up. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And now we're in the danger zone for some theologically. Because, as we have described for new before, meaning those whom God has set his covenantal affection on. Foreknowledge is not, I look forward into time and just kind of watch what happens and see it ahead of time. That is a kind of foreknowledge that people talk about. But God, being God, does not just kind of look into the future and see things that autonomous creatures will do, meaning that we have our own will and just make all of our own decisions and God just happens to notice it. To foreknow is, and, and as I've explained it before, you know what, when people say in a male-female relationship that they knew each other, you know what I'm talking about? The Bible uses that kind of terminology in, in places. The word know there means a relational know. In that they have come together as one, as only those who have that kind of intimacy would come together. I hope that's clear enough, right? So the kind of foreknowledge that God has is the foreloving of a people. I love them ahead of time. I've chosen to set my covenantal affection upon them ahead of time. And we know from the passage, the last two chapters specifically, that it says Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that, that happened before they were born and before they had done anything. Not because I looked into time and saw what they would do, but before any of that was done, I chose to love one and not the other. That's what foreknowledge biblically means. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but your argument is with God and Paul. Because that is what the scriptures teach. 
And a part of the reason that we know that is not only because you can go do word studies and find out that's what it says and that's how the, that word is used other places in scripture, and we, we could do that. We also know that from Romans 8, which makes it very clear. Uh, I just have to find out the verse here. Romans 8, starting in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, if he starts with foreknowledge, he ends with glorification. And either you are a universalist, meaning everybody's saved, or you believe that foreknowledge is only of some. Well, how could God only foreknow, like see ahead of time, some? That wouldn't make any sense in this passage, because he, that, in that way he would foreknow all. But we biblically see what Paul's arguing here is all those whom he chooses to love ahead of time, he chooses to love forever, and he brings that to completion. What he started, as we, it's Philippians 1, 6, the work that he starts in foreknowledge, he moves through predestined and called and justified and glorified. All whom he foreknows, he glorifies. Therefore, foreknowledge cannot be of all. It can only be of some, which is why we describe foreknowledge as something that God does ahead of time to those whom he chooses. So when it says, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, he's saying God has not rejected all of Israel, whom he foreknew, but all of Israel are his people. In other words, the all and the some start feeling mixed up, if you're just reading this and kind of naturally reacting to it. Do you understand what I'm saying, or are you more confused? Okay, I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to make it clear. God has not rejected his people, all of Israel... God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And we know foreknow must only mean some. It can only mean that. By definition, by explanation from other passages, on all of that combined. Okay, so, okay, so, that sounds good. Um, <clears throat> God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. If foreknow can only mean some, either he's, either he's just changing the word and meaning all, all of a sudden, because... Some of his people are not saved. The question is, has God rejected his people? And Paul's response is, no, there are some who are saved, essentially. So that must mean either foreknow means something else, or when he says his people, he doesn't mean all Israel. Notice where he goes. I, I promise I won't go 20 minutes over. Okay, I know we've only got nine minutes left. Here we go. I probably just lied to you, sorry. Uh, but I'm going to try my best is what I'm going to say. I'm going to try my best to get this done here in 10 minutes. Here we go. And we still are supposed to sing. Wow. Okay, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Let's just let Paul say more and see if he tells us what that means. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Okay, verse 3. Lord... We're in 1 Kings now, if we, if we were to take, go find this, we're in 1 Kings. 
Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 18 is what famous passage? Anybody know? Elijah and the prophets of Baal, or Baal, depending on which scholars you're listening to, okay? And so he, he, has, this, he has this contest. The prophets of Baal will have their altar, and then they will try to call down their God to come and to burn up their offering, and Elijah will have this. And so they have this showdown, you know, this death match, literally, this is not literally, literally death match. Because when the prophets of Baal lose and their God does not respond, despite them cutting themselves to try to get Baal to respond. They're doing everything they can to get their God to respond to their cries, and he will not. And Elijah goes, maybe he's taking a bathroom break. Go read it. 1 Kings 18, he says that. He doesn't use the word bathroom, but he says, maybe he's relieving himself. Read it. He, so, so, Elijah watches them do this, and then he calls down after dousing the altar with water and filling a moat around it with water until it's all soaking wet, and then he calls from God and kapow. Elijah wins, and the prophets of Baal get slaughtered, and Jezebel gets ticked. The beginning of 1 Kings 19 and now Elijah is on the run and says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. He's in despair. He's in fear, despite the display that he has just seen, as well as everybody else. The wrath of a human has caused him to fear, and he feels like he's all alone. He not only feels like he's all alone, he basically says, I'm all alone. There's nobody else. It's just me. What does God reply to him? It's 1 Kings 19 and verse 18. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God says, you're not alone. I know you feel alone. I know that at the moment, you're probably by yourself but the point is, you're not alone. I have my people. I have my people. They haven't taken away all the people. I have my people. Why would God let there be no people left? God says, I keep my people. I have my people. I've got my 7,000. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, this is Paul making the argument, using the illustration of Elijah into the present time of Paul's day, saying, if God keeps a remnant, then he keeps a remnant now. God always has his people. Okay? So too, at the present time, there's a remnant, and he says, chosen, foreknowledge, predestination, election, right there, right? Chosen by grace, meaning not what they've done, but what God has done. Not because of what they will do, but because of what he does through Christ. But if it is by grace, it is no longer in the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you're relying on works, 
you're out of luck. It's not going to work. <laughs> relying on works gets you nowhere. Relying on grace is the only way. What then? Verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. In other words, it was using the law for what it was not intended for. We've seen this before in Romans and elsewhere in Scripture. But they failed to obtain what it was seeking. They were seeking righteousness by the law, and it cannot be found by the law. They were misusing the law. They were abusing the law. They were taking what God gave for one purpose and using it for another. And that was never the way of righteousness. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay, now, chosen by grace, then it talks about the elect. We've already seen the word foreknow, those whom he foreknew. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This is um, coming from Isaiah and Deuteronomy, kind of two passages that have similar sayings, and, and it's wedged together here by Paul. It's not just that they have a spirit of stupor, although they do, but also God gave them that. And it says before, God hardened <clears throat> the rest. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So it says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. You talk to people who, no matter what you say, they will not hear. No matter what you show, they will not see. They have chosen to believe that their football team is the best, no matter what else you say. That Jay Cutler actually is the greatest quarterback ever, no matter what you say, right? That the Lions are a playoff team, no matter what you say. Which they are not, I'm saying, prophetically. Word of knowledge from God. <laughs> we'll, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. <clears throat> okay, we should actually focus here, get done. So, there are those whom God chooses and there are those whom God hardens. And then it says, and David says, which is in Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In other words, the bending of backs is an interesting um, kind of word picture here. The idea of the, the burden is still upon them. And so if they choose to try to seek righteousness by works, they cannot achieve it but by being hardened and, and by hardening themselves, as both are happening simultaneously, it is never that God merely hardens those who really, really would believe in God. God hardens those who are already, they're, they're already wanting to do their own thing. <clears throat> and so what happens here is this. Paul... Knowing that the question there is, is, is Israel just cut off? Are they just done? And Paul's going to have more to say about this, but just in this passage today. Has God rejected his people? The answer is no. Number one, because I'm Paul. I'm an Israelite, a Benjaminite. I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got all the qualifications. I'm, I've got everything there. I'm born into this family. And I'm 
saved. So no, that's not possible for that to be true because of me, because I'm, I'm, I'm an example of that. But beyond just me, let me also explain a second reason. The second reason is, is that God foreknows a people. And foreknow means some. And we have already read in other passages, <clears throat> we've already read from other passages in, in Romans itself, that there are more, let me, let me just turn to two of them. 229. But a Jew is one inwardly. What is Paul's qualifications for being a Jew in Romans 11? Outwardly, right? They are uh, born. They're the externals. They're, they're those things. But though I'm born into a certain family, and that's just a part of who I am by birth. It's not something I choose or whatever. He says, in chapter 2, verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is, not a, is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, the physical, outward, external things that make us Jews as a people, you're born into Judaism, and then you're circumcised on the eighth day, those physical, outward things, the being born into the family things, are not the things that make you a true Jew. Although they make you a part of a nation, that doesn't necessarily mean you're his people. And it is a, a beautiful and important thing for us to understand. Because if we don't get that, we'll just be okay where we are with what externals we have. It is my constant work as a pastor when I talk to Christian people to not talk about externals as the reason that you're a Christian. The externals should be there, but they don't make it the thing. <clears throat> um, chapter 9, verse 6, and then we'll finish up where we are. Chapter 9, verse 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Seems contradictory, but it's what Paul has been saying all along. And so he makes it clear here, it is not those who have who have descended into Israel, have become a part of a people because they're just simply born there, who are his people. God has a people among his people. In other words, I'm using people in two different ways there. The Israelites are God's people. Yes, they've been given the oracles of God. They've been given the promises of God. They've been given you know, the, the prophets. They have all of these things that are external benefits of being there. But just because you have all those benefits doesn't mean that you're going to get to the end that he wants, which is that you are the people of his people. Sometimes I describe the church as a city within the city. It's not, some, not something I've made up. It's something other people have said. But we are to be like another city within the city that we're in. We are to show a way of using the economy differently. We're to show a way to use material things differently. We're to show the culture around us. This is what it means, not just to be a Christian, but this is what it means to live within the city of God. In the middle of the city of man. And what Paul is saying is, is these promises all came to the people of Israel, but only certain people actually received the promises. Only certain people are actually foreknown by God, elect by God, chosen by his grace. And therefore, God has not rejected his people because 
you're thinking of his people as Israel, and I'm thinking of his people as the ones whom he's chosen. In other words, he changes the argument to, you can't talk about his people as those who are born, you talk about those people who are born again, what we would use in Christian terminology uh, after Christ, the words are born again. And that's the same way people have always been saved. So let me just finish with this. And uh, I kept my promise by 15 minutes, <coughs> which means I'm five minutes late. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to keep preaching, Wayne. That's fine. Um, the, the hardest hearts are no match for God. I just want to add that thought there at the end because it is not their hardness that determines whether or not they can know God. It is God's mercy. You can talk to the hardest of people, the most determined of sinners to reject God. And if God sends his spirit and melts their heart, it, everything is changed. It's just that's how God works. And so we don't look at people as some are harder than others. So it's very common in, in books on evangelism and things is there are certain groups that are just hard to the gospel. They, they may be hard because God has allowed them to be hard or God has, has hardened them because they have, you know, rejected or whatever, but all people have rejected, so therefore nobody's a match for God's mercy. Nobody can withstand when he chooses some for salvation. And then let me just say the second thing, and I'll be done. Sometimes we're Elijah and we feel like we're alone. And we feel like, I just recently met with a guy, and he was asking, you know, what churches around you are like-minded? And I said, well, you know, of the ones who actually are preaching the gospel, there's this church and this church and this church, but of the ones who believe the gospel in the way we believe it, we're, we're a rare breed. And I'm not saying that to somehow be prideful. I'm really, really not. I'm just saying I've, I've, when we have weeks off, we don't just go and play. We've visited many of these churches, and we're shocked by some of the things that we hear and the things that are not believed there. And so it's, it's very easy to go, man, we're just all by ourselves, but God says, I have my people. I have my people. And when we feel like it's the end, we feel like there's nowhere to go, we feel like there's no one there God has his people. God has his remnant. And Paul's point is, when it looks like God has rejected a people, he always has his remnant. And so today, a Jew can become a Christian just as quickly, just as easily as anyone else. And it's just as difficult, and they're just as hardened as everyone else. Because what God has done is not just rejected them completely or accepted them completely, he has said, I've always had my people within my people. The reason for Israel was not that every one of them is saved, it's so that Messiah would come and that among them would be his people. We're going to get a lot deeper into this as we continue through Romans 11, and we're way out of time, so Jerry is going to come up and sing as we're leaving, and anybody wants to kind of stay and sing Mighty to Save? <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> anyone, I'm just saying, if, uh, if anyone's in a hurry, you can go. We do have Valley High service today. Be praying for that, for those of us who are volunteering there.